I'm Tim Light, and today we have sort of a unique episode planned for you. We thought we would do sort of a recap. We couldn't choose every episode. I mean, there are 14 episodes. So we chose four episodes that we wanted to highlight. We're going to hear clips from these episodes, and then I'll chat about them a bit. So first we'll hear episode six, which addresses the myth that Native Americans have a predisposition to addiction. Then we'll jump into episode seven, which addresses the myth the only legitimate treatment for addiction is abstinence. And then we'll jump into episode eight, which addresses the myth methadone or suboxone are no different than heroin. And we'll round it out by talking about episode nine, which addresses the myth, not my kids. All right, let's jump in. There's a lot of feelings that come up for me. I think the biggest feeling is probably fear. For me, this was something that was talked about a lot when, when I was younger. And at a very young age, I was very debilitized by by this thing. And I heard it all the time. And, and not just, you know, within my family or my community, I seen it on TV. I seen it in media. I seen those type of stigmas just like in cartoon shows I can remember you know seeing it in in comic books and in tv uh newspaper ads it was based around like Native Americans being intoxicated or not being functionable and and I was like this is gonna happen to me and then when I seen it in my family it just confirmed you know like this is what I'm supposed to be. This is where I'm supposed to go. You know, Ashanti brings up a really good point in this episode about the impact that these myths can have on individuals and communities. She also points out that these myths are deeply intertwined in our culture, in popular media, in TV shows and movies. And these myths they don't. They not only affect adults, but they affect uh, perhaps more profoundly Native American youth and children. It's just shocking how pervasive these myths are. And you know, Ashanti really brings up the point that we need to acknowledge that these myths are so pervasive in our in our culture and in our you know our our media our our entertainment. We need to acknowledge that they not only exist, but we need to acknowledge that there are generational impacts, huge negative impacts from these myths. And, you know, before we can ever start addressing them, we have to acknowledge them. So when we start talking about oppression, so um, we have individuals and groups, of course, we all know this, that are marginalized. And what eventually happens is when a per, when a group of individuals are oppressed, they begin to take on the beliefs of the oppressor. And so there's a resistance that comes with that, the first initial resistance, but you get something pounded on you enough, no expectations, no, you know, you, you're not expected to succeed. You're not expected to excel. You're not expected to, to not be addicted to a substance. You begin to believe that. And then that tailors into your own dialogue because then you start engaging in those oppressive conversations with others. It's like, yeah, you know, we're all just, you know, 
we're all going to be drunks. We're all going to not have jobs. We're all going to not graduate from high school. And so these concepts are so, you know, they're, they're, they're ingrained. They've been there for a very long time. And so the oppression, those who are oppressed will begin to take the views of the oppressor. You know, this thought by Michelle is so profound because it highlights that these myths, they're painful, they're destructive, and they come from the oppressor. Yet, because they have lasted for so long, she feels the oppressed have started to believe the oppressor. And that is just something that we can't stand for. We can't allow anymore the oppressor to have such power over marginalized people. If we sort of let this myth go on, it says that the causes of addiction are wholly internal and thus unchangeable by the rest of us, right? The only people who could change it if it's genetic are people, you know, with PhDs and MDs who are working on research and can do gene therapy. That's not true. There are so many social causes of addiction that are modifiable, which means we can change them. And I think emphasizing that and emphasizing the ways in which we, as people who live in this country, but are global citizens as well, we have a responsibility to help reduce risk factors for all sorts of bad health outcomes. And we know the social risk factors that increase risk for addiction. There are these adverse childhood experiences, their unemployment, their poverty, their mistreatment, and that we have a responsibility to address those. And so when you hear or sort of levels of addiction differ by race, note that it's not race that's causing that, it's racism. It's the way we treat communities of color and have mistreated communities of color. And so whenever you hear, oh, you know, African-Americans have this different rate of disease than whites or Native Americans have this different disease than whites, it's not because of some sort of internal genetic differences between us. It's because of the social conditions around us. You know, Dr. Madden really brings us home here by pointing out that we as global citizens are contributing two rates of addiction. So let me bring it back. So she she points out that if somebody has an addiction, their addiction is caused by the social climate in which they exist and and social circumstances that are created by that society. And we are all contributors of that. I love how she said if a certain race has a higher rate of addiction than another, that is not contributed to that race. That's not a biological contribution, but rather that is racism contributing to those higher rates of addiction. Those are social causes. And we, as global citizens, have power over social causes. We have the power to start changing the social tides away from contributing to these adverse childhood experiences and other risk factors of addiction. I know that it is a bias and it's a personal bias for most of them because many of us that work in the field are in recovery or were recovered, right? And many of whom recovered through 12 steps. So I, being a guilty one, I is absolutely guilty of this. I take my experience and I generalize it to everyone else. 
you know, and it's like, well, this is what worked for me. So that's what must work for you. You know, and it was for a very painful personal experience of losing my sister and trying to save my brother's life that I learned that that is not going to work, that I had to stop doing that. I was a practitioner for five years before that, you know, where I literally told people I preferred not to take people who were on methadone because I felt like it was a crutch. So, yeah, like I had these judgments and I've seen them and I continue to see them in treatment. In fact, I was asked last week if I would speak at a treatment center but then they called me back this girl messaged me back and said oh you know this person that I know in recovery that works there they said that you can't come speak to them here because you drink and that's just an example like, really? and it's like that's like the kind of biases and such that exist they exist very much in treatment and as a provider it makes me mad because people knowingly opt for their bias because there's just something about addiction treatment. There's something about us identifying as addicts and then identifying later as people in recovery that gives us this really strong personal like buy-in to, yeah. to holding on to these boxes and these stigmas and such. And I think most of the time it comes from a good place and sometimes it just comes out of ignorance. Mindy brings up a good point. I hear about the the bias that exists in traditional ways in which we treat addiction in the United States, which has primarily focused on 12-step programs. And she points out that, you know, at this point, most people who have gone through recovery have done so through a 12-step program. And so that's what they know. And she, you know, also stated that she feels like there's a when someone has, is in recovery, they have this huge personal buy-in, and which then turns into quite a bit of bias. And so Mindy suggests that we take a step back. We look at the science, and we try to decide, based off of research, you know, what's the best way to approach this chronic illness of addiction, of substance use disorders. Rather than saying, well, this is what worked for me. This is how I experienced, you know, addiction and recovery. And so this is going to work for other people. Since when are all of our experiences the same? Therefore, how can we expect treatment to be the exact same for every person? I know from my own personal experience, the barriers for me were one, how was I going to pay for it Two, you know, like I was in the middle of my addiction life. And so that lifestyle that I was living definitely did not give me the means to be able to, you know, like sign up for health insurance or do any of these things within myself. Those things were not capable for me. So it, it really came down, can you purchase those on the street, kind of like illicit drugs? Can you purchase Suboxone on the street? Can you purchase methadone on the street? Yes. And then once I had experience that, I was like, oh, well, maybe that is doable because I can actually get up and go to work and have a job and then start to provide things for my family while I'm on methadone, while I'm on Suboxone, while I'm on Subutex. I can actually do those things and it's not this consumption of my mind of like oh man I have to go do this and it's got to be right now like it's it's okay I, I can go to work 
And, and do those things better your life, Ashanti? Do they oh, better your life? They completely bettered my life in every way possible. I, I went to work and then would come home and take care of my daughter and cook dinner and do laundry. However, you know, when I was using the list drugs, those things weren't possible. So, you know, it's the barriers for me were, you know, how am I going to take care of this? How am I going to be able to pay for this? The benefit to that was once I was able to, you know, go in, I could pay like the dollar amount, the daily amount in a methadone clinic. And then you gain some trust and you gain a lot of trust within yourself. Like you can actually bring it home and use it on a daily basis without checking in every day and be responsible. And things that worked for me were going in there and, you know, talking to a therapist once a week, you know, like taking some time to talk about what was going on inside of my head really helped me address the behavior of wanting to just become so, I don't know, saturated in drugs. Like I just, if I got in my head, I had to get out of it. And methadone for me was extremely helpful. It was that stark of a difference. Like it was. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was that stark of a difference. And you see results quickly. And I mean, quickly, like 14 day period quickly within 14 days, I was able to have a job for me. Addiction looked like I didn't get out of bed and I was incapable of doing things. Some people are, are different and they're, um, what do you call those? Like a functioning addict. That's what it's like functioning addict. This piece from Ashanti is really exciting for me because it she illustrates so well the benefits that medication for addiction treatment can have in a person's life. She also points out that despite these medications scientifically being proven to benefit people's lives, scientifically proven to be effective, there are still barriers to receiving these medications. She illustrates circumstances in which that need to be changed. And she also, I don't want to say very much about, you know, like what needs to be changed or how to change it, except if we're going to change these barriers, if we're going to remove these barriers, we have to have, you know, the people who are being affected by these barriers involved in that decision. People like Ashanti have to be at the table when that decision is being made and when options are being laid out. Because only they truly, only someone who's had to use one of these medications for addiction treatment truly understands the breadth of the barriers. Nothing about us without us. People treat overdose like it's an end thing, you know, like. Like once somebody's overdosed and died, they're a statistic and that's the end of it. But that's not the end of it. That was the beginning of it for me. You know, my sister's missed my son graduating high school. She missed my daughter graduating kindergarten. She missed me going through a divorce. She's missed everything I've ever done in her honor. And every day that she's gone, it's still just the day she left. You know, and that's the thing that people forget is that those of us who lost people to overdose, we're still missing them every single day, long after you counted them five years ago in your tally of people who died. Every day she's missing. 
She's not making the Thanksgiving turkey that she's supposed to make because I burn myself and hers are juicier. She's not making my Oreo balls at Christmas. It's like, it's all those things that like, I don't ever get to have with her again. It's hard to comment on this piece from Mindy, but I think it's, it's important to state that fatal overdose reaches far beyond any statistic when we're talking about the effect of losing a life, that effect reaches on for long periods of time. Like Mindy said, you know, she keeps feeling this. You know, th- her sister passing away profoundly impacts her life far beyond when that fatal overdose was recorded as a statistic. I think methadone is a great thing for someone to get on that's, um, you know, been abusing heroin because the, it's going to help them from overdosing. So when you're stigmatizing someone and you're telling them, oh, no, you're not clean, you know, it brings someone's whole something that you've worked for that's so precious. And then, you know, and it is recovery. You bring them down and you send them back for a relapse and they might not make it back from that. It's just so scary. And you know, I think if we're going to show anybody in recovery anything, no matter what pathway they're on, we, it should be compassion and support, not stigma. Stigma kills people. It's so hard. And so many people in um, addiction and in recovery face stigma. Spana brings up really great points here about how medications for addiction treatment are life-saving medications and that the stigma associated with these these medications This stigma is extremely dangerous. She says stigma kills. And she's not wrong when she says that. She's right on. Stigma kills. And she points out that people who use drugs, people who are in recovery, people who are seeking recovery, all of them experience a great deal of stigma. And we need to do more to get rid of that stigma. Methadone programs in Canada are different from the UK and different from the US, but what unites them all is a lack of trust of uh, the drug user. Like, you know, we're just seen as dodgy people. And uh, so it's not like you go into a pharmacy and get your medication in, in the same way you would any other medication. There's a different parallel path. And sometimes, yeah, that's got security guards and lineup out front and, and, you know, bulletproof plexiglass and all that you know we call it liquid handcuffs because there's so many rules mm-hmm. and so that's that's another thing is people don't want their lives regulated like that they don't want to be you know doing a piss test in front of a camera or whatever like that you know so it's i think there's a lot of that too is that people just don't want their autonomy in their bodies to be so uh, regulated like that garth brings up this point of um barriers again like ashanti did and oh, wow the only thing that that kept coming to my mind as I listened to Garth talk about these barriers is that if we are going to get rid of these barriers, we have to bring people who are the victims of these barriers to the decision-making table. They have to be there. They have to tell decision-makers what it's like, what it feels like. Most people are not going to abuse methadone. Like a lot of harm reduction Um, efforts, I think people get scared off because they're afraid of that, you know, less than half a percent of people who 
they will take as a as evidence that those that those efforts are not worthwhile who are going to uh, abuse methadone is is the judgment i think dr press points out here that the common judgment and opposition toward medication for addiction treatment is that people who use drugs will quote abuse these medications which you know is not it, it's just not the case perhaps there's a small fraction of individuals who do but the the vast majority of evidence again clearly shows that there's a significant benefit there's a significant benefit in many aspects of recovery for people who use medications for addiction treatment. One way that it's damaging is that idea that if they become addicted, that means they're a bad kid. As a parent, if we believe that myth, we have to accept then that our parenting failed. There's just such a myriad of ways that opioid misuse can start. It goes across any socioeconomic status, any education level, race, ethnicity, anything like that. We should be loving and caring towards all of those who have an illness. And it's something we know is occurring with people with substance use disorders. I loved episode nine of Debunked for a lot of reasons. But I just wanted to point out uh, three right here. This myth, not my kid, you know, this idea that my kid's too smart. I've taught my kid, you know, the right things. Um, I've given them a really good life. Therefore, they will not develop a substance use disorder. It's just not going to happen. This myth is dangerous to children because if they do develop a substance use disorder, this myth suggests to that child that they then are a bad person that they are a bad kid. And also, it suggests to the parents that those parents are bad. When we know, we know from a mountain of evidence that substance use disorders develop from a variety of different circumstances, traumas, experiences that may or may not have anything to do with that child, you know, having poor behavior or their parents having poor parenting. The second point is that Substance use disorders, these cross socioeconomic levels, these cross social barriers, they don't discriminate. And finally, because this is such a complicated issue, it's such a complicated story, and therefore it requires that all of us show a little bit more compassion and a lot more love for going to overcome this issue. I have loved so much this journey of uh, creating this podcast, Debunked. I have learned and grown, and I hope you as a listener have as well. I'm so excited for season two and for upcoming seasons after season two. Season two is going to be incredible, and I just know that we all are going to learn and grow from hearing the perspectives of people who are experiencing homelessness, who are experiencing substance use disorders, or who have in the past. It's going to be really enlightening, and I'm so excited for this empathetic path that we're all about to go down. I am also really sad because I'm not going to be the host of season two. I am a medical student this year and have decided that my role on Debunked 
needs to take more of an editorial board member role. So I'll still be involved in the background, but you won't hear my voice anymore. But again, I'm so excited for season two. I'm sad that I won't be able to be up in front, but please know that I'm still behind the scenes. I'm still working hard on these issues from my home base and, you know, on this editorial board. I love you all. I'm so grateful for the compassion and love that has been poured out to our team from the community and for the efforts that, you know, average community members have shown in um, empathizing and reaching out and being more loving and more compassionate as a result of the stories shared on this show. And I hope that that continues to be the trend as we move forward. Thanks for joining us today on Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, opioids, and substance use disorders. I'm Tim Light, and today we recap season one of Debunked. Join us on April 7th for the debut of season two of Debunked, where we will begin the journey of debunking myths related to homelessness and substance use disorders. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at DebunkPod, or on our website at bit.ly forward slash DebunkPod. Don't forget to tell all your friends about Debunked, and remind them that they can find the show on the podcast app, Spotify, UPR.org, and anywhere else they get their podcasts. Debunked is produced in collaboration with Utah Public Radio. Funding for the show comes from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement, the Utah State University Department of Kinesiology, and Health Sciences and Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield. Our editorial board is Jay Hymas, Adam Baxter, Ashanti Moritz, Savannah Ely, Dr. Sandra Solzer, Dr. Suzanne Prevedel, Dr. Aaron Fanning Madden, Mindy Vincent, Patrick Rizak, Michelle Chapus, Dr. Marin Voss, Dr. Amy Kahn, Trisha Glass, Boyd Arrive, Hilary Deesh, Jennifer Petrus, and Susie Baker. Debunked is produced by Jameen Fitzgerald, Nick Porath, Shalane Smith-Needham, and Friend Weller. Our creative specialist is Autumn Gibbs. Music for today's episode was created by Nick Porath. Our science advisor is Dr. Aaron Fanning Madden, and our program directors are Dr. Sandra Solzer and Dr. Suzanne Prevedel. I'm Tim Light, host and editorial board member. <laughs>